0: you now stand before the magnificent palace grounds of Schönbrunn, the summer residence of the Habsburgs. The name Schönbrunn comes from the term Schönerbrunnen, or beautiful spring, and refers to an artesian well that provided a natural source of drinking water for the palace residents for centuries. Use of this area as a hunting ground dates back to 1569, when Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II purchased the estate, then called Kataburg along with the expansive, wooded area stretching into the hills to the southwest. The land was fenced in and established as a game park, where nobles could hunt deer, wild boar, and various game birds, or simply escape the crowds of the city. While the facades you see today were largely refaced in the neoclassical style during the early 19th century, the majority of the palace's construction was executed over the course of around a century, beginning under Emperor Leopold I as an imperial hunting lodge for his son Joseph I, then substantially expanded during the mid-18th century under Empress Maria Theresa in the highly decorative Rococo style and made the royal summer residence. Most of the rooms inside have been preserved in their original form and are included in various admission packages the palace offers in its ticket office, located in the former gatehouse at the palace's majestic main entrance. If you can imagine, the original plan for this palace complex, drawn up by architect Johann Fischer von Erlach, included palatial buildings about three times as extensive as the current structure. Its immense scale was intended to put the French Palace of Versailles to shame. These initial designs situated the main palace at the top of the park's central hill, where the ornamental Gloriette building now stands. But funds were still tight when construction began in 1696, only 13 years after the Second Turkish Siege, and Erlach's plans had to be massively scaled back, to the modest 1,441-room palace complex you see today. But the outdoor attractions of Schönbrunn are even more enticing than its sumptuous interiors, and as a public park, are largely free to enter during daylight hours. In addition to wooded walking trails and meticulously manicured French Baroque lawns, the grounds include a number of decorative fountains and follies, or fake ancient ruins meant to add visual interest. These were all the rage in 18th-century landscaping. Its paid attractions include two topiary mazes and Europe's first zoo, which is also the oldest operating zoo in the world. Called the Tiergarten Schönbrunn, the zoo was originally built for the 16 royal children of Holy Roman Emperor Franz Stefan of Lorraine and Empress Maria Theresa. They say that once her children had left the nest, the Dowager Empress delighted in being transported by carriage up to the Gloriette every morning for her breakfast, during which giraffes and zebras would be released on the lawn to frolic as she ate. Speaking of carriages, the Wagenburg, or Imperial Carriage Museum, is also located in the extensive Schönbrunn outbuildings as are the Schönbrunn Children's Museum, Marionette Theater, and Apple Strudel Show, where you can learn all the local tips and tricks on making the classic Viennese pastry. The end product may seem simple, sliced and sugared apples, raisins, and breadcrumbs wrapped in a thin pastry dough to form a log and baked until golden brown. But perfecting this Austrian staple involves some serious technique. The dough, for instance, should be beaten and stretched into a delicate sheet. Thin enough that you can read a newspaper through it. Of course, there are plenty of alternatives to doing the work yourself, as one of Vienna's classic specialties, Afferstudl can be found at nearly every café around town, usually served with vanilla sauce, whipped cream, or a dollop of vanilla ice cream. Including the café residence, near the palace entrance, and in the Gloriette, which offers the added bonus of an incomparable view of the palace grounds from above. As a cultural and architectural landmark, many important historical events have taken place here at Schönbrunn over the centuries. In 1762, the Hall of Mirrors was the site of a concert given by the six-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart for the Empress Maria Theresa and her children, including her oldest son and future Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, and her youngest daughter, Marie Antoinette. Legend has it that after finishing his concerto, young Mozart jumped into the matriarch's lap and planted a kiss on Her Majesty's royal visage. The famous composer would return to the palace as an adult as well, specifically to the Orangerie, located in the palace's northeast corner near the stop. As the name suggests, the Orangerie was originally used to house the garden's delicate citrus and exotic fruit trees in the cold winter months, during which time intimate banquets and concerts would be held under the verdant canopies of these tropical plants. This was where, in 1786, Mozart once again performed for a royal audience at Schönbrunn, this time in a musical duel, a one-act operatic showdown against his rival, Antonio Salieri. As the royal guests dined, two short operas were performed simultaneously, Mozart's Der der Schauspieldirektor, or The Impresario, at one end of the greenhouse, and Salieri's Prima la Musica e Poi la Parole, or first the music, then the words, at the other. At the end of the evening, the winner was chosen, and the 100 ducats for first prize went to Salieri. But it's Mozart's work that survives in this room today. Tourist concerts are given here regularly, featuring favorites of the classical Viennese canon. One Schönbrunn resident in particular, Empress Elizabeth of Bavaria, Sisi to her subjects, was famous for her love of the oranges produced here. Renowned throughout Europe for her tiny 18-inch or 45-centimeter corseted waist, she maintained her figure through a strict daily diet and vigorous exercise, especially riding her horses through the palace grounds and in the lines game preserve just southwest of here. She was also an enthusiastic swimmer, enjoyed fencing, and insisted on invigorating daily walks regardless of the weather though if it became really inclement, she also had an indoor option, custom-made machines in her exercise room. These provided weight and resistance training, as well as certain types of 19th century calisthenics. Considering that strenuous exercise was still considered unhealthy for women during the 19th century, Cece was remarkably ahead of her time. In fact, the Viennese court was scandalized when news leaked that she'd also had gymnastic equipment installed in her dressing room at the Hofburg. Even to us today, though, certain aspects of her routine may seem alarming. She purportedly weighed herself at least three times each day in order to stay between 45 and 46 kilos, right around 100 pounds. And she never exceeded 50 kilos, or 110 pounds, even when pregnant. According to the account of a countess friend of Cece's, who wrote a tell-all memoir published in 1913, Cece would, quote, often sleep with wet towels round her waist in order to keep its proportions slender. She also slept on an iron bedstead without a mattress or pillow in the belief that lying flat helped her maintain her figure, and wore a leather facial mask lined with either raw veal or crushed strawberries to preserve her youthful complexion. Cece's routines might easily be dismissed as eccentric or obsessive, But a closer look at her diaries and letters reveals that these behaviors are the product of an energetic, highly intelligent individual with too few creative and intellectual outlets. Expected to restrict herself to the domestic duties of a wife and mother, Cece found little support at court or among her family for her other interests. So she turned inward, reading and writing poetry, especially about her love of travel, engaging tutors in history, philosophy, and literature, and using the three hours required to brush and style her hair every day to learn several languages, including Greek and Hungarian. She had a contentious relationship with her mother-in-law, who was also her aunt, Princess Sophie of Bavaria. Sophie had originally arranged for her son, the Emperor Franz Josef I, to marry Sisi's older sister. But upon meeting both girls, the young emperor became infatuated with the 15-year-old Sisi. They married eight months later, and Cece was pregnant with her first child within the year. Her mother-in-law immediately assumed complete control of the child's upbringing against Cece's wishes, naming the child after herself and disallowing her to breastfeed or have regular contact with her mother. She repeated this procedure with all but the youngest of Cece's children, Marie-Valerie, who was born 10 years after her closest sibling in 1868. Because the child's conception coincided with Emperor Franz Josef's conciliation with Hungary, a cause which Sisi had championed for years, and because Sisi had been quite outspoken about disliking physical intimacy and hating being pregnant, there was open speculation at court that Sisi's last pregnancy was a strategic concession to her husband to secure the Austro-Hungarian Compromise. The baby was even nicknamed the Hungarian Child. The negotiation of this compromise, by the way, is the reason why the Austrian Empire once again changed its name to the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1867, reflecting the restoration of the old Hungarian constitution, re-establishment of its parliament and territorial integrity, and coronation of Emperor Franz Joseph I as the head of the new dual monarchy. A couple major international negotiations have also physically taken place here in the palace. In Schönbrunn's massive ballroom, the Congress of Vienna was held after Napoleon's final defeat in 1814 and 1815. The resolutions reached at this historic conference brought an end to the quarter-century of nearly continuous war and determined spheres of European influence over other parts of the globe but the borders laid out in 1815 couldn't withstand the wave of revolutionary sentiment that would sweep the continent only 3 decades later when europe experienced the most widespread wave of political upheaval and civil unrest in history if you're interested in learning a bit more about the 1848 revolution in vienna check out my episode on the inner district square am hof schönbrunn has also hosted peace talks more recently on june 3rd and 4th of 1961 the newly elected American president John F. Kennedy met with veteran Soviet chairman Nikita Khrushchev to discuss tough Cold War issues such as the communist state of Cuba, the influence of the USSR in Indochina, nuclear disarmament, and the ongoing tension in Berlin. At a crucial point in the discussions, Khrushchev threatened the young president that he would sign a peace treaty with East Germany, resulting in a total cutoff of Western access to the German capital. Despite Khrushchev's expectations. Kennedy refused to capitulate to these threats, answering with the now-iconic phrase, Then, Mr. Chairman, there will be a war. It will be a cold, long winter. From this quote, the press developed the term cold war, used to describe the hostilities between the communist world and the West that lasted into the last decade of the 20th century. Chosen for its neutrality, Austria still provides an internationally significant diplomatic site today a virtue which has attracted both the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, and the United Nations to establish offices in Vienna. Thank you for taking my Vienna's must-sees tour. We've now come to the end of this route, so I'll give you a couple of other options to explore while you're in town. If you want to head straight back into the city, take the U4 line, this time getting on in the opposite direction toward Heiligenstadt. It connects to every other underground line in the city along the way back into town, so you're sure to find one that works for your destination. While you're out here, though, if you want to check out some of the attractions of the 13th District, there are a couple great culinary options just around the corner. If you exit the palace grounds near the zoo at the west side gate, you'll be walking through the old town center of Hietzing, this district's name when it was still an independent township before its integration into Vienna in the 19th century. There are three options I'd propose for some refreshments, all situated within a short walking distance of the Old Town Square. Brandauer Schlossbrei is a local brewery and German-style beer hall set back on the far, or west, end of the square at Amplatz No. 5. It has a full menu of German-style food and offers outdoor seating in nice weather. Plachute is a local landmark, synonymous with excellent Austrian cuisine. In fact, it even has its own line of highly regarded cookbooks, also available in English if you want to try your hand at typical local dishes once you get home. Its heatsing location is situated just beyond the Y intersection you see at the town square's west end, at Alnhofstrasse number 1. If you decide to make a full meal of it, they specialize in beef and veal dishes like traditional Wiener Schnitzel, a fried breaded veal cutlet served with cranberry compote or Tafelspitz, a delicate beef consomme served with choice cuts of beef, boiled root vegetables, fresh horseradish cream, and a number of sides. Or, if you're leaning more towards something sweet, you'll see Kurkonditerei Oberla just to the right of Plachute at Domayagasa No. 1. Oberla is renowned for its cakes and pastries and offers both indoor and outdoor seating. Of course, you may also be interested in my other themed tours, Check my podcast download page for an up-to-date selection, and feel free to reach out on social media. If you enjoyed this tour and want to support Gretel Guides, I'm very grateful for donations in any amount. Contributions from users like you are what keep my content free, so if you want to help me cover the costs of producing, recording, editing, and distributing my podcast, I'm very grateful for your support. Thanks again for letting me guide you through Vienna, and safe travels.